Open our eyes, Lord, that we might behold wondrous things in your word. Amen. I read a story about a gym owner who was a very strong man. He was a weightlifter in his own right, and he offered a uh, free lifetime membership to his gym to anybody who could get a drop of lemon juice out of a lemon after he'd squeezed it. And uh, time after time, people challenged him, but he could never do it. He just immense strength, and he'd squeeze every drop out of this lemon. Anyway, a very short and, and weedy little bloke turned up one day and said he'd like to have a go. And uh, all the onlookers had a bit of a giggle and, and watched. So the gym owner squeezed every drop he could out of the lemon and handed it over to this little bloke. And this little bloke examined it carefully all over and then he squeezed it and he got not one but five drops of juice out of it. And the owner was gobsmacked and said, what, what do you do for a living? You're a weightlifter or what? He said, no, I work for the taxation department. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I sent this, this sermon to a, a friend who I knew would be very critical and um, that was the only bit that he reckoned was good in the whole thing, good, good on that. <laughs> Otherwise he was mainly saying, cut, cut, too much, too much detail, too many texts and so which I have to say reminded me, if you'll forgive another little uh, um, anecdote about the... Um, minister who had a big slash on his face when he was preaching and somebody said to him what happened to you and he said he said um I was shaving and I was I was thinking about my sermon and I cut myself and the bloke says well next time think about your face and cut the sermon so <laughs> well Zacchaeus was another little man who worked for the tax department such as it was then but in his day, first century Roman-occupied Palestine, I don't imagine you made light-hearted jokes about tax collectors like we do. Of course, for us, the tax collector isn't somebody who's a person that we ever actually meet. We don't have anyone to hate, as it were. I actually checked out a website to see where tax collectors came in the, the rankings of normal people. I went to something called Top Tens, you've probably seen it before, and um, the tax man only came in at 13, so somebody in Top Tens obviously can't count, but um, he, was, uh, he was behind even tra traffic wardens and, and dentists. So tax collectors these days, not so bad, but in Jesus' day, and I'm sure you all know this, tax collectors or publicans, publicans and sinners was always in the old versions. And I, for many years, thought a publican was a bloke who ran a hotel. But publicans and, and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. You could say tax collectors and other sinners. That's the way they are spoken about <clears throat> many times in the New Testament. They were held in contempt. And why? Well, because, first of all, they were regarded as, um, as collaborators with the Romans, which effectively they were, because they were collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans. And uh, in this case, they were 
paying taxes to Herod, who, which must have been doubly galling because he was of Jewish descent. Uh, and secondly, because they routinely made a lot more money than they were entitled to strictly by charging more than they should. And the citizens had no recourse to, uh, to appeal. I read uh, this, it was said, it was the basest of all livelihoods. I don't want to labour this too much because we're familiar with it, but I want us to, to get the feeling uh, that the people would have had towards Zacchaeus. This is reflected in their response when Jesus invited him to come down from the tree and go with him to dinner. There are 21 references, and, and I think they're in three categories. One is texts that express just how low tax collectors were in the morality rankings. And, and three times we have the expression, even the tax collectors do that. Even the tax collectors love those who love them. In Luke chapter 3, um, in John's ministry, John the Baptist, even the tax collectors came to be baptised. And later in Luke, even the tax collectors acknowledged that God's way was right. And then we have texts referring to how the scribes and Pharisees, who we, we could call the righteous, despised them. Uh, texts like this in Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then there are texts showing how Jesus related to them as their friend. He includes Matthew, the tax collector, early on amongst his disciples. Matthew invites him to dinner and a whole lot of other tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples for there were many who followed him. That's many tax collectors and sinners who were following him. So now to the story of Jesus. The, the participants in the story are the crowd, Zacchaeus and Jesus. The crowd uh, I've called the critics. All the people saw this and began to mutter. Uh, other translations have uh, began to grumble. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. In their minds, tax collector equaled sinner. And this bloke was a tax collector. Worse, he was a chief tax collector. Although it's not abundantly clear what exactly that meant. But uh, he was wealthy as well, off the back of good Jewish people like them. We might say they were quite content to dismiss him simply on the basis of his profession. <coughs> they didn't really see him as a person, hence their grumbling. He was stereotyped, and the crowd just saw a stereotype. Now, this, this um, image we've got up here, it's one block of granite. It's, I was in um, Iceland in... Reykjavik, you called a few days ago <coughs> on Google Maps. And, um, 
and I found this. This, this is called, um, what is it called? The Unknown Bureaucrat. Now, Iceland doesn't have an army, so they can't have an unknown soldier memorial. They've got a memorial to the Unknown Bureaucrat. And when I found this, I found a little description of it. And it says, you'll have to make up your own mind whether it was jocular or whether it was a serious recognition of people who are faceless. Now, I think bureaucrats... Um, we often complain about bureaucrats, especially when they make a decision or have a policy, come up with a policy we don't like that affects us. But um, this, this represented Zacchaeus quite well to me. <coughs> um, th there's, a, there's legs and a briefcase and he's off to work, but there's no torso or face, no head. He's literally a faceless... <coughs> Bureaucrat. Uh, anyway, we'd better move on from there because I've got to watch the time. Uh, I want to talk quickly now about Zacchaeus. <coughs> That's the crowd, the critics. Now we've got Zacchaeus, the seeker. And for, seeker, uh, for Zacchaeus, seeing Jesus was much more than idle curiosity, I think. He really wanted to see who Jesus was. He must have heard about Jesus. Maybe he'd met people whose lives had been changed by Jesus. Perhaps he was very aware of what was missing in his own life. He was dead keen. He throws dignity to the winds, runs ahead, climbs the sycamore tree, and uh, which is a large, very climbable tree, I, I, I find. And... Um, <clears throat> Uh, and then he came down like a shot when Jesus called him down. So he was thirsty, I reckon. As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. But a commentator, one of my favourites, uh, an American Catholic bishop who's got a terrific website and is a wonderful speaker, says... Biblical religion, although, yes, we thirst for God, is not primarily about our quest for God. It's about God's relentless quest for us. He comes running after us. The second thing I wanted to note about Zacchaeus is that his encounter with Jesus changed him. You know, Judy rightly said that there's always some more to find in a passage. <clears throat> and I've had to resist the temptation to explore some quite interesting side things that appeal to me in this passage. Because in some translations in particular, it appears as though Zacchaeus is saying, I'm already giving to the poor. I'm already giving restitution and so on. But that's one of those things I didn't even mention now. Um, his encounter with Jesus changed him. He was filled with joy. He was recognised. Jesus called him down and said, Zacchaeus, come down. Called him by name, recognised him, welcomed him, and he was overjoyed, I think, to be invited, uh, to be um, invited to have Jesus as a guest. And what happened was, I think, that it changed his perspective on people. 
uh, such that, for example, he saw the poor giving half his goods to the poor. And he sees what he should do and, and how. The, the law, and we have it in Leviticus 6, about people who've stolen stuff and taken things that didn't belong. He shall restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found or anything about it which he swore falsely. He shall make restitution for it in full and add it to it one-fifth more. So he had to add, he had to give back he was required, he knew this, he was required to give back what he'd taken, plus 20%. Well, he's going to give back four times what he was uh, required to. So he's, um, he's changed big time. Jesus, the friend, he's en route to Jerusalem, just 10 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, on his way up to what he knows will be his last days, knowing he was going to die at the hands of evil men. It was imminent, and yet he was not fixated on himself like you or I would have been. He was able to see Zacchaeus and take notice of him. He was aware of a divine purpose in this. He said, today I must lodge with you. I must stay with you. He called him by name. He saw Zacchaeus the person and treated him with respect. Imagine what that meant to Zacchaeus and how he felt. I think this was transformational. I'll come back to that. We might say Jesus saw through him, saw past the stereotype to what was in him. I'm reminded, and you probably are too, of 1 Samuel 16 where Samuel's very impressed by one of King David's brothers, one of Jesse's sons, by his appearance and his stature. And God says, people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and loves him, just as he incidentally loved another rich person, in this case, who went away sorrowful, the rich young ruler. It, it says in that text, Jesus looked straight at him and loved him. And lastly, he saw Zacchaeus as lost. We've got this at the, the end of the reading. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. <clears throat> now, I don't know whether Zacchaeus thought of himself as being lost, but I suspect that he did feel lost. So where are we in the story? I'm not going to ask whether we're like Jesus, um, but I'm going to ask whether we're like the public, the critics, in the way we see people as stereotypes, or whether we're like Zacchaeus, who was joyfully transformed in his thinking about others. So, are we like the critics? Well, who are our tax collectors and sinners? Who are the people who we're apt to regard as beyond the pale, who we see as stereotypes, 
without seeing them as people. Refugees, perhaps. Muslims. Terrorists. The people who sleep in the park. Maybe LGBTQI plus people. If you're a farmer, maybe you see uh, environmentalist as a greenie. Not, not as a person, but as a greenie. Or perhaps even other Christians. Oh, he's a, he's a Roman Catholic. Don't take any notice of what he says. Or he's a Pentecostal. Don't take any notice of that. I've got, I've got another example here, the street protester. How do we see the street protesters who hold up the traffic in the city? Well, I participated, participate every now and again in one of those demos in, in the city, and I'm pleased that I have. In some cases, I think it's made a difference, along with thousands of other people and thousands of other demonstrations, but... After participating in a Black Lives Matter demo in the city, I read a letter in The Age by a bright young Christian who I know who labelled the demonstrators, and therefore me, as latte-sipping city do-gooders picking the low-hanging fruit. Now, I've, I actually have done a lot of sitting through tiresome meetings with um, people talking about reconciliation and so on. I've... I've hit the streets, I've written letters to par par parliamentarians. I don't sip latte very much um, and uh, I don't see myself like that. But he would because I was one of those demonstrators. <laughs> Actually, I told in our old home group, I told people I'd been in this. No, I didn't. We, it, somebody referred to this demonstration and one of the ladies says, those people should be locked up. <laughs> and I said, like me? <laughs> It was quite funny. Um, one other example. No, I've got two. Have I got time for two? Oh, easily. Yeah. Incidentally, uh, I... Oh, no, I better not. Um, it's, it's the obscenely wealthy. And, and I think of James Packer. Perhaps I shouldn't mention him by name, but it's too late now. Um, and my antipathy towards what I think he represents. But how does Jesus see him? <clears throat> Surely as lost. And if we think about it, for all his wealth and privilege, he must be a very unhappy man. He's had six partners so far, two divorces, three separations. He's had a fight in public that he's been fined for with one of his, his best friends. Uh, when I saw him speaking from his $283 million super yacht um, by video to a royal commission, he looked uh, uh, like a very, very sad, broken man. Now, I would say Jesus would look at him with love, seeing the person, not the stereotype. One more, and, and I think I can afford this. I read a story about a young Aboriginal offender and it was in the Northern Territory Independent and it was written by John Lawrence, who's a prominent Northern Territory barrister. And it's the starkest possible contemporary example 
I think, of the challenge to see the difficult people in our society as people and refuse to be content with the stereotype. In this case, the stereotype of a wildly behaving antisocial young Aboriginal boy. This, he's talking about a particular boy, an 11-year-old, who he's represented. 11-year-old. It begs the question, what do we see when we see a boy with a black skin running wild? Who or what do people in authority, whether government policy makers or police or shopkeepers or employees in the prison service, what do they see when such a boy comes into conflict with the law through what is plainly antisocial behaviour? And this barrister, Lawrence, describes the conditions under which this boy is kept as barbaric, including this 11-year-old boy, 20 to 22 hours a day in solitary confinement in his concrete and steel cell, three metres by two metres, with a Judas hatch on the door to receive meals, a mattress, a toilet bowl and shower and a faulty TV. Then he goes on to describe the boy's utterly destructive family background in awful detail which psychologically speaking makes his antisocial behaviour nothing less than inevitable. And by the way, he's never, he's never killed anybody, he's never had done an armed robbery, he's never done anything really bad. He's just been a blooming nuisance and kept coming back before the law. So he finishes up this place. And I, I, I'll just quote now for the first time from the article. He says, bearing in mind Billy's mental state before he was locked up in Dondale, that three-month ordeal has probably further damaged him psychologically. I'd say probably, that's for sure. As noted, there is no trauma-informed care at Dondale. But few people involved seem to really care, from the police to the lawyers and the public servants from various departments, right up to the judicial officers who ordered his incarceration. People say that they care. The judges wring their hands and look pained but then order Billy and other children into this dungeon. Interestingly, the article concludes by quoting 1 John 3.18. My dear children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Zacchaeus. Hendrickson, uh, New Testament scholar, comments, the loving concern Jesus had shown for Zacchaeus made him a changed man. The loving concern for Zacchaeus made him a changed man. The great German writer Goethe said, if you treat an individual as he is, he will stay like he is. If you treat him as if he were what he ought to be and could be, he will become what he could be and should be. And um, we've all probably seen, and, and David Devine mentioned him last uh, Sunday in Les Miserables, which he pronounced correctly, um, Jean Valjean who's just been released after 19 years of imprisonment for stealing a loaf of bread, I think, to feed his mother. 
And uh, Bishop takes him in, gives him a meal, allows him to sleep in the place. And while the bishop is um, not there, he steals a whole lot of silver. And um, the police bring Jean Valjean back after the, he is, he actually he knocks the bishop down first when the bishop sees what he's doing, flattens him, then runs off. Next day, the police bring him back, and. Uh, they say, is this your silver? Yes, it is. And the priest, the bishop says, why didn't you take the candlesticks? I meant you to have them as well, and gives him the candlesticks. Off. Anyway, that's the story. I hope you've got the drift if you haven't heard it before. The point is, the bishop saw like Jesus did. The bishop saw in Jean Valjean a person in need of salvation in need of grace. Not a convict, but a human being. I'll better skip this next bit. I'll better start skipping something. I'm, I'm at the end really now. I want to talk about what God requires of us. Micah 6, 8, we're probably all familiar with through uh, tear fund. To, what does the Lord require of us? But to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. A second thing he requires, I think, is the renewal of our minds. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And thirdly, a change of heart. It's not enough to intellectualise all this and say, yes, I understand, yes, we've got to love people, etc., etc. I understand that. A change of heart. Love to be replaced by non-judgmentalism. Uh, love, not judgmentalism. Relationships, not rules. And I think uh, just a final comment on that. If we don't interact with people, if we stay in our own little social circle and don't interact with other people, then it's much easier to just treat them as stereotypes or as others. Anyway, the barrister pointed the way. My dear children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I want to finish with a prayer, just lifting a couple of lines from a song written by Ross Langmead. I don't know how many people know him or his music. Um, taught at, at Whitley College and um, was a real live evangelist in his own right, really. He wrote this song, Lord, let me see, see more and more, see the beauty of the person, not the colour of their skin. Lord, let me love, love more and more. Love the loveless and the fragile. Help them be what they can be. Lord, let us love like that. Amen.